even if it weren't anonymous, let's say that it were all transparent, the fact that we accept and welcome authoritarian money into the West means that we're incentivizing authoritarianism. Welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. You just heard the voice of our guest today, that's Charles Davidson, in an interview with Matthew Stevenson. But before we dive into that interview, I want to give you a few Kickback housekeeping notes. And we'll start with me. My name is Jonathan Kleinpass. You have not heard my voice before. And that is because my voice hasn't been on this podcast before. You might have heard my name before because Chris and Niels were so kind to give you some credit for working on this podcast in the background. And now we've decided that it would be a fantastic idea to bring on a third guy with a thick German accent to this podcast. So now I'm also going to be helping out in the foreground, editing the podcast and doing some, what is it, moderating work. But enough about me, on to the next point. Chris and Niels told you last episode that we want to improve the content on Kickback. And we think one part of that is hearing from you. So we want to hear from you about the interviews we conduct. Maybe you have a comment on one of the topics. We also want to hear what you want to hear in the future. Maybe there's a particular topic that we aren't aware of. Let us know. We really want to make Kickback a place for discussion about anti-corruption, and corruption research. So please write us. You can write us through Facebook, that's facebook.com slash kickbackgap, or through Twitter, that's at kickbackgap, or you can write us an email to info at icrnetwork.org. Another exciting thing is that we now have a patron account, which is very exciting for us because it means you can actually give us money now. As it is right now, Kickback is made completely by volunteers and your money could help us with marketing, your money could help us with uh, paying for trips to conduct an interview, for example, or maybe even hiring an intern one day to help us out with our social media activities because we are, quite frankly, not very good at social media, so we need some help. If you don't have any money to give us, that's all right too, of course. Um, you can help us without your money. Not only by listening, but maybe by leaving a comment, for example, on iTunes or giving us a rating to make Kickback more visible to other listeners. All right, that's enough of the housekeeping. Please enjoy Matthew Stevenson's interview with Charles Davidson. This is Matthew Stevenson, and I am thrilled to be joined today by Charles Davidson. Charles is the publisher of the American Interest magazine. He was also the founder of the Kleptocracy Initiative at the Hudson Institute, which is a US-based think tank. And uh, he has worked broadly on a range of issues connected to anti-corruption, anti-kleptocracy, and a host of related topics. So Charles, thank you very much for joining me today. Well, it's great to be here, Matthew. Thank you. 
perhaps we can begin our conversation with just a little bit more about your own background specifically on these issues. So maybe you could tell uh, me and our listeners more about how you came to be interested in issues related to corruption and kleptocracy and what kinds of projects and activities that led you to work on. Well, initially being involved in uh, in the uh, venture capital industry and in, in business and in management career more broadly, uh, I became aware of illicit financial flows and of um, the role of tax havens and secrecy jurisdictions. And uh, this was a while ago when people weren't talking about all this stuff so much. But the geopolitical implications seemed very clear to me uh, and very negative. And so the year after I started the American Interest magazine, uh, which I started in 2005, in 2006 I came across the book Capitalism's Achilles' Heel by Raymond Baker. And uh, we started then a few months after that, Global Financial Integrity, uh, which is a, a small think tank still going strong and working on these issues. And uh, I was just fascinated because Raymond's book brought together in one place all of the different issues uh, going from the way that the system of illicit finance corrupts countries like Nigeria, where Raymond had um, lived and worked uh, and been an entrepreneur for many years, everything from that to the enablement of tax evasion in uh, wealthy European countries and the United States. So all of these maladies that financial secrecy and illicit financial flows permit were brought together in, in one place. So this book, Capitalism's Achilles Heel and Raymond Baker, was really my starting point for having an overall consciousness of uh, these problems. So tell me a little bit more, tell our listeners a little bit more about uh, that book. So it sounds like, if I understand you correctly, illicit financial flows, financial secrecy, is what uh, Mr. Baker would describe as capitalism's Achilles' heel. Can you say a little bit more about the, the thesis of the book? That title suggests it means that capitalism itself as a system is is vulnerable um, because of this problem. So what exactly does that mean? Well, uh, uh, and he, he was early on this, we should say. Uh, so his starting point was seeing the extent to which uh, so-called developing countries weren't developing. In other words, capitalism wasn't working there. Uh, and uh, he saw the number one reason for this being the fact that uh, one didn't have a rules-based situation at all and that it was impossible to have rule of law and a level playing field in these countries. And then, uh, most importantly, the financial secrecy system and illicit financial flows led to this huge uh, capital flight from these countries. So one would have natural resources uh, would usually be the, uh, the these countries usually had the resource curse because otherwise there wouldn't have been a, uh, a ready source of wealth. And then the um, capitalism couldn't develop because of money just being spirited out of, out of the country. And the incentives also that this created for corruption and for a rules-based system to never take root. So, um, so that was the starting point for it. This is around 2006 when you read this book and it connected very much with things you'd already been thinking about or observing in your own career. Then 
Tell me a little bit about how you carried that forward. So 2005, I founded the American Interest Magazine, yeah, and uh, which has had really nothing to do uh, uh, with these matters except publishing occasionally on the subject since I'm interested in it. Um, so separately, so I, I, I co-founded with Raymond Baker then this uh, think tank, Global Financial Integrity, in 2006. And then a few years later with Jack Blum, whom I met via this... Uh, Global Financial Integrity Think Tank, uh, we started something called the FACT Coalition, the Financial Accountability and Corporate Transparency Coalition, which brought together global financial integrity and many other organiz organizations to um, be essentially a uh, an activist coalition. You can't say lobbying, of course, but, but uh, basically um, an activist group on issues of corporate transparency, and this was had much more of a tax focus originally, uh, but has now become a um, significant player in pushing for the doing away with anonymous companies, the so-called beneficial ownership legislation and uh, and other legislation. It's, it's essentially a legislative um, influence group that brings together uh, many organizations in this area. Um, and then I also, just one last thing quickly, I, I uh, was executive producer of a film, We're Not Broke, that was premiered at Sundance in 2012, uh, which is about corporate tax avoidance and evasion and the whole gray area between the two. And it explains all of this in very simple terms. And uh, so it was premiered at Sundance and was on Netflix. So I've been involved with various things here. And then after the film, there was a sort of two year hiatus for me in terms of these involvements, um, which led up to the, the more recent organization I was involved with creating, specifically targeting kleptocracy. But I imagine we'll get to that in, in more detail. Yes, I definitely want to ask you about your work specifically on anti-kleptocracy, but let me pick up on one of the threads that you just, just mentioned, which is the push for greater corporate transparency, in particular beneficial ownership transparency in the United States. The West more generally, but I take it your work and the work of the FACT Coalition has been focused specifically on the United States. And for those of our listeners who are not already aware about this, the term beneficial owner, owner basically means the real human beings who actually own or are entitled to receive the benefits of, of corporate entities. And right now, in many jurisdictions, including the United States, you can register a company without, at that point, having to reveal the human beings who own the company. You can say, we're registering this company, it's, it's owned by this other company that's in some offshore jurisdiction, you would never know who the actual owners were. My impression, my understanding is that various groups have been pushing for reform in this area, to push for beneficial ownership, disclosure, or transparency in the United States for over a decade, with very little success in t until just the last couple of years. And the bill still hasn't passed yet, but as we're having this conversation, there there are bills pending in both the House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate that have received a great deal of support across party lines and uh, from a diverse set of uh, groups. N not universal acclaim, obviously, but, but it seems like something has changed just within the last couple of years on this issue that gives maybe more reason for optimism, assuming that you support these kinds of reforms. Do you have a sense, as someone who's worked in, on this issue for well over a decade, why are we seeing at least the possibility of progress now where it seemed for so many years that this wasn't going to go anywhere? 
my my reflex is to um, is to point to a different situation in uh, in geopolitics here, but also elsewhere, where uh, international crime and kleptocracy has become a much greater threat to Western democracy. And um, one uh, uh, big element of this have been criminal regimes or uh, allegedly criminal regimes, with Russia as sort of the poster child for this, trying to exert political influence uh, in the West and using corporate anonymity as a vehicle for channeling funds into the West. So I think that's been the trigger, the ability to anonymously channel funds into here. And uh, we now see very clearly, for instance, in the 2016 presidential election, where uh, anonymous companies were used very effectively to f uh, fund influence operations. So I would say that's what's been the, the, uh, the kicker. Uh, and then the other aspect has been um, just uh, criminality, more and more reporting, more and more cases of uh, drug lords, human trafficking uh, folks, uh, all, all sorts of criminals using anonymous corporate ownership to launder uh, the proceeds uh, of their activities. And the, pa the Panama Papers, of course, have brought huge publicity to this uh, and to a much broader audience. So without the Panama Papers, would we be where we are? Uh, perhaps not. That's been maybe the, um, uh, if the stuff goes through, it's maybe been the final uh, nail in the coffin. So I want to ask you about the kleptocracy issues that you just alluded to in a moment ago. But before we leave the subject of beneficial ownership transparency more narrowly defined, I want to ask you the following question. So in the literature and discussions of this issue which, with which I'm aware, nobody defends the systems that currently exists in the United States, where you can register a company, list the owners of the company as other companies, and never have to provide any information on the actual flesh and blood human beneficial owners of the company. But even among advocates of greater corporate transparency, beneficial ownership transparency, there is a live debate on the question of whether these uh, databases or registers of beneficial owners once created should be publicly available or whether availability of this information should be limited to law enforcement agencies conducting an investigation or institutions like banks that are obliged to do due diligence on customers. And there are many who have advocated for an open, fully transparent register of the sort that the United Kingdom has recently adopted. There are others, though, who have argued that making all the information public has significant downsides and is ultimately not necessary to achieve most or all of the benefits associated with the collection of beneficial ownership information and have argued for something along the lines of what the currently pending U.S. legislation would do, which would be to require those registering a company to provide that information to the government and that information would be available from the government either to other law enforcement en entities or to certain designated institutions doing due diligence, but where there wouldn't be a public register. Do you have a view as someone who's worked in this issue for some time as to uh, whether these beneficial ownership databases ought to be publicly available or whether the access to the databases ought to be more limited? Well, I think it depends on the style of capitalism that one wants to have. Um, the most important thing is that one not to be able to actually do this sort of thing and, and that law enforcement have access and uh, 
the appropriate financial regulatory authorities. Uh, the the arguments in favor of um, of a, a public registry are for. Uh, uh, really essentially, I think, political. It's the notion of having a, a much more transparent capitalism, about not being able to uh, hide one's activities. So, for instance, uh, I mean, it can, it can lead to different ways for companies to compete. If you can create a, a vehicle uh, to buy stuff that nobody knows about, well, people don't know that you're buying the stuff. There's nothing ostensibly illegal about that. But uh, uh, it, if... Um, you're trying to hide the fact you're buying something so you don't move the price up. Well, you can't do that so easily if you have um, uh, completely transparent ownership. Although the, the ownership registries are just showing uh, who owns something. So, I mean, it doesn't tell you whether there's $1,000 of assets or millions. So I'm not sure that, uh, that the public registries really take away uh, the privacy of, uh, of, of what you're doing from a business standpoint as much as some people would think. So I guess, I mean, on, on balance, I think the public registry is probably the best way to go uh, because I don't really see downsides to it. But we're not going to get that in the U.S. right away. People aren't ready for that. Um, and for that matter, I'm not aware of countries with public re registries who are really enforcing the sort of stuff um, uh, with much diligence. So the UK, you mentioned the UK has these public registries, um, but they're, they're, uh, up till now, uh, nothing has really been, uh, been done with them, to my knowledge. So it sounds like, and correct me if, I, if this is a mischaracterization of your position, your view is it would be better, at least in the medium to long term, to have the registries be public, but that the really important thing is to have the information submitted to the government to the point of registration, that that's like, I don't know, I hear I'm putting words in your mouth, but no, something no, like 80 to 90% right. of the gain is there, and then yeah. having it public, that's a nice extra thing in your view yeah. that we should like, but that the essential thing is that the government have the information so that law enforcement or entities that need to do due diligence can get that information. Right, that's key. Now, if, of course, if this information is public, it much facilitates the work of journalists and of the fourth estate in terms of keeping, for that matter, law enforcement accountable for uh, doing its job properly. So I think ultimately we do want to go uh, towards maximum transparency in this regard. Great. So there's certainly, we could fill our, all of our time talking just about the beneficial ownership uh, transparency issues, which are fascinating. But of course, the work that you've done is so much broader. And I do want to pick up on the thread that you introduced earlier in our conversation about kleptocracy more generally. So partly you said that one of the reasons that maybe we're getting more traction in the United States of beneficial ownership reform is because uh, of the recognition of the risks that kleptocracies pose in influencing our own here in the United States domestic politics. But then there's also a, a, a general sense about the risks that these kinds of regimes pose. So say a little bit more, if you could, about the kind of work that you've been involved with on kleptocracy and anti-kleptocracy generally, beyond the, the very specific though important issue of beneficial ownership transparency, what are the other key issues in this area that you think our listeners should, should know about? Well, the, the fundamental architecture to keep in mind in terms of modern day kleptocracy uh, is how the kleptocratic regime is structured and the role that we play in this structuring. Uh, and all uh, authoritarian regimes, with a possible exception of China now, uh, 
uh, are also kleptocracies and follow the following model. Uh, the governing uh, clique or person, whoever's in, in uh, power in these kleptocracies, authoritarian regimes, we can, we can use the, uh, the two terms um, interchangeably and, uh, um, and in tandem, uh, they all have a model where the regime that loots at home, the rule of thieves is, of course, the definition of uh, the term kleptocracy. So the looters loot from the home country and then take the money out and store it in the West using the sort of systems that we were talking about earlier, using the sort of illicit financial flows anonymous companies and all of the mechanisms of offshore of tax havens and secrecy jurisdictions to safeguard the money they've looted from their home country. So that's the business model of modern day kleptocracy, of modern day authoritarianism. And those are the countries that are threatening freedom and democracy in the West and undermining our political systems, uh, chiefly by trying to influence elections but also by undermining our societies in all sorts of broader and more subtle ways via pernicious participation that they are achieving, bringing not only their money here, but them, their, themselves and uh, are importers of this kleptocracy. They can't export it to us without willing importers on our side we are becoming increasingly kleptocratized as we import more and more of this stuff. So when you say we, you're referring to the United States or possibly other call it wealthy Western democracies. That's the we that you're referring to here. So, yes. um, so one measure that we were just discussing that countries like the United States or for that matter the United Kingdom, France, Germany, etc. Could, could take to address at least part of this problem is corporate ownership transparency, but I think most people would agree that that's only a part and probably only a relatively small part of the overall problem. So let's assume for the moment, let's be optimistic, let's assume something like the legislation currently pending in the US Congress passes. Let's even assume within a few years we can go further and follow the UK's example of having a fully public beneficial ownership register and maybe unlike the current situation of the UK now, really enforce it and make sure the information there is accurate. So suppose we did that. Suppose we checked that box. What are the next, I don't know, three or four boxes that you think that we, we and in here I'll use the we also to mean, let's say, the United States uh, or U.S., Western Europe, et cetera, Australia more broadly, would need to check? Once, once If we can get this right. one settled, what are the next three or four things, or fewer or more, whatever, but that you would list as the high-priority areas where countries like the United States are not doing enough to combat both the kleptocracy problem itself and also the ways in which, as you were just suggesting, mm. kleptocratic regimes are influencing through direct or indirect ways and potentially corroding institutions in those same Western countries. Okay, well, gosh, there are a lot of, a lot of questions there. Let's, let's start with, with the structure that exists. So it's, it's both anonymous companies and the ability to um, uh, invest in the in in the West, uh, but it's it's even if it weren't anonymous, let's say that it were all transparent. It's becoming increasingly transparent. The fact that we accept and welcome authoritarian money 
into the West means that we're incentivizing authoritarianism. And I actually think that's the most important thing that our societies and our, our political leadership needs to come to grips with, is that we can't uh, continue to incentivize authoritarianism by taking the money, even transparently. So in the, in the case of, uh, well, let's take Russia. In the case of the Putin regime, if we welcome Putin and his, uh, his pals, uh, the oligarchs closest to him, which is most of them, as we've come to learn, if we welcome all that money in, into the West, uh, we're helping to keep him in power. So this is, this is true of the authoritarian kleptocratic couple on a, on a global scale. Let's, we can take a country like Azerbaijan, uh, all of these smaller kleptocracies, the ruling families, all keep their money and invest in the, in the West and in, in uh, rule of law democracies. They need that rule of law to safeguard their, uh, their, their assets. As long as we're doing that, we're in, incentivizing the wrong people being in power in those countries. So it, it, we are going to have to ultimately engage in some sort of uh, pushback there, I think, that is going to um, uh, be problematic in terms of our own notions of freedom and, and liberty and all of that. We're going to have to make some decisions, very difficult decisions. It's going to force us to question our own operating paradigms if we want to push back against authoritarianism. So let me follow up on that because I think that's a very powerful but also very provocative suggestion as you, as you just acknowledged. So in the United States, as you know and as many of our listeners may know, there is a mechanism, actually multiple mechanisms, for targeted sanctions at individuals who are believed to be serious human rights abusers or kleptocrats. The Global Magnitsky Act is the best known of these mechanisms, but there are others as well. For example, uh, sanctions have been imposed on Russian and Ukrainian oligarchs in connection with Russia's invasion of the Crimea and Ukraine. So, so this mechanism does exist and has been used. It has been used in the United States in, I would say, a relatively targeted, sanction, uh, targeted fashion. There are some people who have been so targeted, but what you just said a moment ago, again, I'm going to interpret it in maybe the most provocative way, and if you want to push back and say I've mischaracterized it, that's fine. But you frame this in terms of authoritarian systems generally and accepting money from authoritarian states, and I'd be interested to know where you draw the line in two dimensions. So the first dimension would be which countries in particular are you talking about? So there are states that I think many would say are out-and-out -out kleptocracies, where it really is rule by thieves. Maybe Equatorial Guinea under the Obiang family fits this model, where it's hard to see the wealth of the state being used for anything other than the enrichment of the ruling family. There are other countries that many would categorize as effectively authoritarian, even though there's a nominal democracy, they don't fit that model quite so well. Singapore maybe would be the opposite end of the continuum. Again, nominally a democracy, but really it's a one-party state. And then there are others that might be somewhere in the middle, like perhaps Turkey or Hungary or a number of others that we could mention. So one question I want to ask you is when you're trying to define the set of countries that to which you would like to apply your new set of rules, where we're going to uh, be much more rigorous about not allowing money or possibly people to enter into the West and seek the protections of the Western rule of law system, 
where do you draw that line and, and how? The second dimension is within those systems, it sounds like you weren't talking about sanctions on the countries generally, but about individuals. So and you can see where I'm going with this, how do you draw the line? So I get the idea that you might want to say Putin shouldn't be able to put his assets in the United States, maybe his immediate family. Then we've got oligarchs who are known to be close to Putin. Then we've got very rich Russians who made their money in Russia, but when there, where there's not a direct obvious connection to Putin, but they're kind of playing in the same sandbox, doing business with the same people. So I, I want to push you, if I can, to say a little bit more, because I'm very sympathetic to what you say generally about the West should be much more skeptical about accepting money from authoritarian kleptocrats, but I, I, I stumble a little bit in thinking about how as a practical matter do you draw these lines? If we're going to have targeted individual sanctions, what should be the threshold for triggering what for many people would seem like a pretty extreme uh, response? Yeah, well, I agree with all that. I think that's very well put. It's not easy. It's, and uh, the Global Magnitsky Act, uh, well, the Magnitsky Act and now the Global Magnitsky Act has, have given us the context, I think, uh, within which we need to um, think about how we'd make these decisions because, yes, it's completely, it's targeted towards um, towards individuals. Um, we may uh, have to find some way to go beyond that, perhaps, to groups of individuals. I'm not sure exactly how we do this. Now, now mind you, I've just posed the problems. I'm not on the uh, solution set side of this beyond the beneficial ownership and financial transparency, although I think, we, as you've pointed out, we do need to imagine these things. But this isn't easy at all. I suppose um, one bookend of this, one uh, extreme view could be to consider ourselves to be essentially in wartime, a war between authoritarianism and freedom and democracy. If we think of the wartime footing and think of our context as being a time of crisis, of wartime, then we could have a very different attitude towards this because we're talking about taking financial measures and certain political measures as opposed to killing people. Uh, and so then it, certain things become much more palatable, perhaps. Um, it's, uh, it's not easy to change, uh, to change uh, uh, governments or the way countries govern themselves. And when I say that, I'm thinking of authoritarian kleptocracies. So change doesn't come easily. We see this in the whole democracy promotion area, where we're having great misgivings within our own government and policy world about how we promote or uh, don't promote democracy. And uh, right now, there's a lot of pessimism about that. So I think this is, this is very, very difficult stuff. If we take the situation of Russia, which is perhaps the most oppositional situation we have right now, and, uh, and a very difficult um, interaction with our current administration, which makes this very, very difficult to think about right now. But let's say that we had an administration that were more, was less infiltrated, shall we say, by, by Russia and that was clearly in opposition to it. That might actually be a much simpler playing field on which to think about this, because then we could uh, block their, their influence if they weren't in the U.S. Let me just, sorry, just back up to that. If we didn't have the Russians influencing us, but it was only a problem in Europe, and we had Fortress America intact, well, then we could think about certain measures to help save Europe from Russian influence, shall we say, where we'd be pushing the Europeans on, on transparency and on global Magnitsky-type uh, actions towards certain 
individuals, say, in the Putin circle, people who are actively trying to uh, influence those countries with uh, help from our intelligence agencies to those countries. And, and one can think about how that would act as a sort of front, a little bit like what's going on in Ukraine. So that's the way I would see that. Right now, I mean, this problem is so pervasive and it's so much everywhere that it's hard to, to uh, even um, define the, uh, the, the, the playing field on which you're operating. So I want to follow up on something you just said a moment ago. Before I, before I leave this particular topic, um, what about systems that are, that are kleptocratic and that are authoritarian, but where you don't have this issue of attempted influence over U.S. policy or the corrupting of U.S. institutions and so forth? Because that's a theme that you return to several times. Russia, I think, is clearly the paradigm case that you have in mind, uh, although there might be some others as well. But I invoked Equatorial Guinea a moment ago. I don't think, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, I haven't seen a serious argument that the inflow of money from the Obiang family is intended to or is successful in influencing U.S. policy towards Equatorial Guinea. If anything, the U.S. has proved itself more than willing to go after illicit funds. There was the well-known Obiang settlement from a few years back where I think he had to give up the Michael Jackson glove, or and, though he got to keep the jacket, or maybe it was the other way around. But you see what I'm getting at. So I understand mm. the position that you're taking when, again, we can call, call things by their right names. Russia is the major geopolitical adversary of the United States that is using its financial clout to try to influence policy and possibly interfere directly in U.S. elections. China uh, may be another one, but a lot of the, the kleptocracies of the world are relatively small countries without a lot of geopolitical clout, without a lot of ability to influence U.S. politics or institutions in any kind of significant way, or so I would think. Do, would you suggest adopting a similar posture with respect to those countries and wealth flowing from those countries, and I'm not asking about the Obiangs themselves or people right. like them, but you know, wealth flowing in from I don't know, Turkey might be another example. We're nominally a democracy. I think actually still mostly a democracy, despite what Erdogan has been doing. Do you do you take a different approach when the influence issue isn't so much on the table, or do you think as long as the country is an authoritarian country where the ruling elite is is corrupt? that the U.S. should take a hard line on preventing the inflow of capital from those countries? Well, I think the approaches may be similar, although the political contexts are different. And um, uh, in the case of uh, uh, small African countries or larger African countries that are kleptocratic, we're not so much concerned about their influence on us as we are concerned about their poverty and about development. And development has been a, a big uh, priority for us and the Europeans in these uh, countries for various reasons. Right now, Europe suffers from the very pressing issue of migration from these uh, in incredibly screwed up poor African countries. And um, uh, so the big, the big political threat may be poverty. And we can't uh, alleviate poverty in these countries um, very effectively without stopping the corruption. And that's become an increasingly accepted view. Uh, and the amount of foreign aid that we're putting into these countries is tiny compared to the amount of uh, money that is extracted from these countries. But the most um, uh, 
reputable studies show at least a ratio of one to 10 for every dollar of aid going into these countries, at least 10 is looted out. So um, uh, our motivations for, for stopping, uh, stopping uh, the, the corruption and kleptocracy in poor countries is, is I think, uh, pretty clear. Um, but quite quite different. So that I mean, what you just said is is fascinating to me. It suggests, from a return on investment perspective, the amount that countries like the United States put into curbing corruption, kleptocracy, and other forms of corruption may have a more positive humanitarian effect, dollar for dollar, than providing aid money to these desperately poor countries. Is that a fair characterization of what you just said? Oh, very fair. Yeah. And when I started working on the, on the stuff, and when Raymond Baker and I back in two thousand. 2007 when we started uh, GFI, Global Financial Integrity, um, n this was not uh, well understood at all, the extent to which uh, corruption was an extractor of wealth from, from these countries. And uh, uh, now most people involved in the aid business at least admit uh, the problem. Uh, because, but it, it, this has only been recognized in the last uh, uh, seven or eight years on a broad basis, I'd say. I wanted to pick up on another aspect of the concerns that you raised about kleptocratic regimes, people close to kleptocrats, influencing policy and more generally influencing Western countries like the United States and the ways that preserve or advance the interests of, of these kleptocratic regimes. And that's something that you and some of your collaborators at places like the Kleptocracy Institute or the Free Russia Foundation or other organizations have characterized as reputation laundering. That's the term that's sometimes used. And it would be great if you could say a little bit more to explain to our listeners what exactly you mean by reputation laundering and why we should consider it a significant threat. Uh, well, uh... the concern goes to the issue of the fact that we're welcoming, accepting kleptocratic wealth into our societies. That's the current reality. We're incentivizing the kleptocrats to be in power. They want us to keep doing that. And that's the key to this. All these regimes, Russia, it's, it's particularly dramatic. They've got this whole class of oligarchs ensconced in the West who act as essentially government agents for this, uh, this uh, kleptocratic regime. And part of their mission is to keep things the way they are, and therefore to have reputations in the West that are compatible with our ostensible values so that we won't react politically and push back against them and their regime. We've seen a lot of engagement in so-called reputation laundering, 
this could be in the form of uh, gifts to educational institutions, new wings on museums, all sorts of things. Whatever gets the kleptocrat in good stead with his host country. So that's basically what, what we've seen going on with this. It's about, uh, it's about regime maintenance and keeping the West open for business and keeping us flaccid in terms of reacting to their uh, kleptocratic regime and its influence on us. So that's very helpful. It would be even more helpful if you could maybe unpack that a little bit more so we understand the mechanism, because you referred in what you just said to the kleptocrats laundering their reputations. But my understanding, and you can, again, correct me if I'm wrong about this, is that we don't really see like the Putin school of government in you know at, at Harvard or in the UK. We don't really see like the Xi Jinping Foundation uh, or wing of the museum or whatever. So that when we talk about people engaged in, again, what you and your collaborators sometimes refer to as reputation laundering through things like charitable donations, support of universities, support of think tanks, and so forth, we're not usually talking about the kleptocrats themselves, but typically wealthy, nominally private business people who are allegedly, sometimes clearly, sometimes it's a little bit murkier, allegedly close to these kleptocratic leaders. So can you unpack a little bit more exactly how that works? So imagine that I were Russian and I were close to Putin, and Stevenson's not a very Russian name, but let's just pretend for a moment, and I come to Harvard Law School and I give them $100 million to open the Stevenson Center for the Study of Law and Development. How exactly has that helped Putin to continue to engage in his authoritarian kleptocratic practices? How has it helped me in in terms of my ability to uh, accumulate wealth other than the positive, happy feeling I might get when people think of Stevenson philanthropist as opposed to Stevenson oligarch? That's a great example. We know you, you've given them maybe a very good idea there. Uh, well, uh, let's let's think about what would happen were that to be the case. Um, Stevenson, oligarch of Putin, makes this donation to Harvard Law School. Well, the within our society, graduates of Harvard Law School are influential members of our society. The whole uh, alumni network of Harvard. Law school is influential in all of that. So um, one is buying, uh, one is buying uh, at a minimum a certain amount of passivity in terms of reacting against the regime uh, that one is associated with. So uh, the the it's proxy influence. And uh, Stevenson is uh, basically engaging in an enormous PR operation for the regime that he's associated with. Um, maybe one one thing we could uh, do to, to make this more micro and very easily understandable is to think about a country like Azerbaijan. So if we take these smaller, corrupt, autocratic regimes, there's traditionally been a fair amount of pressure on the human rights front, on press freedom front to uh, confront some of these smaller authoritarian regimes. There, 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 there isn't even any proxy. I mean, it's this, the family, whatever their name is, that controls uh, Azerbaijan that very directly buys into think tanks in DC that has uh, 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 spends a huge amount 
on law firms to threaten people who might write stuff that's critical about Azerbaijan. Uh, there's, there's just a huge repressive operation going on there. That is simply multiplied in the case of larger countries. So I get that, but that seems different from reputation laundering. So I get the idea that olig right. you get, certainly there are litigious oligarchs, there are litigious all sorts of people, yeah. and they'll attempt to use their clout uh, through nominally legitimate channels, maybe, or illegitimate channels to bring pressure to bear. But that seems to me different in kind from influence that's exercised by virtue of, you know, having established the Stevenson Center for Law and Development, doesn't it? Well, actually, one thing I left out of the Azerbaijan picture is the extent to which they try to promote a positive view of Azerbaijan also, and of how it's, uh, in fact, a, a much nicer place than some people would uh, suggest. Uh, so, uh, but yes, in the, in the case of proxies, getting back to the Stevenson example, um, uh, what we see, well, let's take very explicitly the case of Russia. What we see is a lot of oligarchs, uh, many of them sanctioned, uh, but many people who have been documented as being part of Putin's circle who have made huge investments in the West in business, but also who have made huge donations uh, all over the place. And the amounts are not always that great. Uh, there's the famous example in the UK of the Blavatnik School of Government, of all things, at Oxford, uh, which is really an extraordinary irony. Um, and Blavatnik, for that matter, has made all sorts of other donations which have been uh, uh, more or less controversial. Uh, but there, there are lots of um, uh, examples of, um, of this sort of uh, activity going on. We, sh we haven't talked about China, so if I may just jump to China for a moment, since I, I think we don't have a lot of, of time left. Uh, China is engaging in a lot of these uh, same practices, and whether or not it's a kleptocracy is something that we don't have time to get into, but we see huge influence operations being conducted on the part of China, and a lot of publicity that's come to this in the press in the West more recently. And uh, so the, these practices are being conducted by authoritarian regimes on a very grand scale, and there's a whole sort of um, playbook for them. So a big part of that playbook is, is using uh, third parties or, or proxies to, uh, uh, as channels of influence. And this is just happening on, uh, on all, all kinds of levels. So we are almost out of time, but I did want to pick up on one other aspect of this discussion because as someone who is a university professor, I sit in an academic environment, I'm particularly interested and troubled by the points you were just making on the subject of reputation laundering and other channels of illicit influence that directly bear on universities. So I hope our listeners who are not university people will indulge me in engaging a little bit of university parochialism here. but. But I find this a challenging issue, and I would love to hear a little bit more from you about the ways in which universities should, and this would apply to charitable foundations as well, but I'm thinking especially about universities, address these kinds of issues. So it seems to me an easy case if a wealthy donor from wherever, whether it's from Russia or from the United States, wants as a condition of the gift to have a say in personnel or programming or research output or anything like that. That seems like it should be a no-brainer, absolutely not, red line. The 
this is not a context in which the person who pays the piper gets to call the tune. You can say I'm going to you know, start a center on law and development and say a condition of the gift is that you use the money to study law and development, but you can't say it has to be from a libertarian perspective or a Marxist perspective, like whatever. Okay, fine. Um, the harder cases seem to me, and oh, by the way, it also doesn't seem that difficult if you have someone who wants to give money who we, have, we know, we have very clear evidence has engaged in criminal activities directly or egregious human rights violations, and whether or not that person was convicted in their own country, that doesn't matter. Like, we know. The hard cases strike me as situations where you have a wealthy business person who maybe acquired his or her wealth in circumstances where we know there was a lot of corruption going on, who's in the same circles as a lot of the other business people who are very well connected to the government and who's making their money in an environment where you kind of need at least the acquiescence of the government if you're going to become really rich, but where we don't have any kind of smoking gun evidence that the money in question is in fact from illicit sources. So, so this is for me, again, I should make clear to our audience, I'm just a professor. I'm not involved in any kind of administrative decisions. Harvard Law School never consults me with respect to whether they're taking gifts, nor should they. But if I were in that position, this strikes me as the hardest kind of a situation where what do you do? I mean, you say, or I say I'm going to take this money and use it to do good in the world. I'm going to teach people about important topics and there are no conditions attached. And frankly, you know, a lot of us, for those of us who went to universities or with where there were buildings named after famous or rich people, most of us have no idea who those people were or what they stood for. So like, but at the same time, there's this concern. The money is kind of under some kind of a cloud. So if you were giving advice to a university development office or to other people, including maybe some people in our audience who are affiliated with universities as faculty members or staff or students and who might want to get involved in these issues from an activist perspective, what would your advice be? What would be the guidelines you would suggest about when it's okay to accept donations even if there may be some background concerns and when you should draw a red line and say no? This is, of course, extremely difficult. It's a very difficult issue right now. And, and it's somewhat unprecedented, it seems to me, because we've never had a political context uh, in recent memory where um, we were threatened in the way we are by authoritarian regimes trying to influence us within our own borders. Uh, so I think it's very difficult. But maybe if we think of China, that could illuminate this a little bit, because we know the extent to which the Chinese government as, as an organized and concerted effort to influence politics and um, educational systems uh, uh, abroad. Uh, and, and this is now well known. We know they're playing a very long game at this. It seems to me that at, at this point it should be clear we just need to exclude them altogether from uh, donating to our uh, institutions of higher learning, for instance. So that, that kind of frames the issue. Otherwise, we're back to what we were talking about earlier, where there's, there, there are a lot of judgments issues here. There are value judgments that have to be made that are the kind of value judgments that are not compatible with the political correctness that has come to be uh, so accepted. Um, and un unfortunately, that... Uh, uh, that's not going to be easy. It's going to be a case-by-case case sort of thing. Um, what might uh, help with this is if we go back to the be beginning of our conversation and think about beneficial ownership 
and transparency. Right now, we don't have that. Uh, so some of these situations uh, might be a less murky to begin with if we had uh, more transparency in terms of who owns what. Right now, a university might be in a situation where it has to investigate all sorts of things which could be transparent from the get-go. Great. So um, thank you so much that you've given us a ton uh, to think about and chew over, and frankly, a bunch to be worried about as well. Although maybe, again, circling back to where we started at the beginning, we've finally seen in the last couple of years some progress on beneficial ownership transparency. And so, again, I'd prefer to close on a note that's not overly pessimistic. Maybe this is a sign that our systems, and again, by our, I mean those in countries like the United States, are capable of responding to some degree to these challenges. Uh, but I very much admire the work that you've done uh, both on your own and in collaboration with others to bring greater attention to these issues and also to propose and advocate for practical policy solutions that will uh, get at some of these uh, deep problems. So uh, thank you very much. My guest again today on Kickback has been Charles Davidson. And Charles, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Matthew. And that was our interview for today. So as I said in the beginning, we are interested in your opinion. What do you think about reputation laundering? Are there any interesting examples that we should know about? Just let us know. Send us a message, Facebook, tweet, email, whatever is your favorite mean of communications. Use it to get in touch with us. We've left a few links to you in the show notes, of course, to Charles Davidson's American Interest magazine. There's also a link to the Hudson Institute Kleptocracy Initiative. And the book that Charles mentioned in the beginning is called Capitalism's Achilles Heel by Raymond W. Baker. And if you want to read a bit more about the Obi Young family from Equatorial Guinea that Matthew mentioned, there are two articles for you in the show notes. Lastly, I want to say a big thank you to our first patrons. Welcome, Joseph. Welcome, LGVW and so on. I don't think that's a real name. Um, we are very happy to have you and uh, you are basically pathfinders all right there's not much left to say for me but this kickback is a joint production by the interdisciplinary corruption research network and the global anti-corruption blog kickback is made by christopher starke niels kürbis matthew stevenson and jonathan kleinpass with music from kehan golkar until next time